My guest for the day was born in Hollywood with a movie star mother and a constantly traveling family. Throughout her life, she has traveled so many places and has been affected by every culture she has seen. These cultures shape her into the multidimensional, highly knowledgeable person she is today. This is the Madisonian Podcast, and I am your host, Ben Brown. I am um, Cecilia Ford, or Cece, as most people call me, and um, I'm a, a resident of Madison. I was born in, um, actually in Hollywood, <laughs> at um, one of the first HMOs. I was born in 1954, and uh, um, I was born at uh, Kaiser Permanente Hospital in Hollywood, California. And um, let's see uh, how I was raised. My mother was um, uh, kind of upper middle class uh, from English descent, and my dad was Irish through and through. And um, I learned pretty quickly when I was learning what our families were like that her family would not have preferred that she marry an Irish family so uh, into an Irish family and uh, that was part of my growing up was to have a very conservative sort of side of my family that was more proper and the really fun but kind of embarrassing side that was the Irish and he had my dad had um, like 10 brothers and sisters and most of them were lawyers so they loved to argue and uh, my mother was an actress. Uh, she, uh, we can still look at old movies that she was in, in the f like 1940s and sometimes into the 50s. Um, uh, when I was growing up, just we only had broadcast television, and um, she would uh, sometimes you know, there'd be just an old movie that had her in it. And um, it was fun. I have old movies of hers. We can watch them sometime. <laughs> she was in one with, I don't know if you know the actor, Vincent Price. Uh, he's, he played always scary people. And she was in a movie with him that was where she witnessed him murdering somebody. And she went into shock. So she was, she was very fun and delightful. And my dad was um, was a professor and he um, he was a professor of sociology and um, during the Second World War he'd been in military intelligence and as a uh, he was trained in Japanese to do interpretation of Japanese and be a language expert um, so he really loved languages he already knew English and German at that point when he went into the military, the Navy. Um, yeah, so how I was raised, am I staying on track? You can ask questions. Yeah, no, I, I it's, I, a flow is nice, but um, you are doing wonderful so far. Okay. So, yeah. So, uh, I was born in Hollywood, but my, my family lived in L.A. It, it wasn't 
that Hollywood is really just a postal district of LA. And um, we lived in a place called Laurel Canyon, which was a ca canyon in the Hollywood Hills for my first few years. And during that time, we went to Italy. We lived in Rome for a, a year, I, I think about a year. And my dad was doing, working on something to do with his research in, um, uh, in Rome, having to do with, I don't know, urban planning or something like that. And uh, then we moved to the San Fernando Valley and he taught at a, a state college there that's now Cal State Northridge. And um, as soon as we moved there, we went again to Europe we, um, he got a, some kind of exchange position in Vienna, so in Austria. And so my first kind of school experience was in Austria, in Vienna. And my dad would normally just put us in the schools, the local schools, so we'd just learn whatever language there was. And it was partly because I, th I think he thought it was a good idea and experience, but it was also cheaper than going to an English uh, language school, an American school or whatever. So, um, yeah, so that, that was part of our growing up years. And, um, uh, we went then a couple of years later, we went to Spain, um, to Madrid and we did spend a summer in Mexico city. Um, and then the last place we went was when I was about 12. And um, as a family, you know, the last place we went as a family was um, Lebanon. We lived in Beirut, and my dad taught at the American University of Beirut. And um, so I, I had a lot of exposure to different cultures and um, learning. And my dad was very interested in, in people and would talk to everybody you know, whether we were driving through rural Mexico or we drove from, from Beirut to uh, one of our trips while we were living in Lebanon was to drive from Beirut to Tehran in Iran. And that took us through Syria and Iraq and then into Iran. And when we came home, we avoided Iraq and went through the Turkish mountains that are on the borders where the Kurdish um, border is, and then came back down into Syria and, and Lebanon. There were a couple of times, in, in, in addition to that, really, I think it was traumatic to see these bombed out buildings, you know, in, in, as a child in Europe. And obviously it was traumatic for the people that lived through that bombing. Um, and traveling in the Middle East, I saw a lot of, you know, layers of ancient history and more modern history of what humans can do to other humans. You know, the, the Ottoman Empire ruled that part of the world for a few hundred years. I don't know the history well enough. But that was fairly recent and they were ruthless. They terrorized people. They, I saw like a pyramid made of skulls. It wasn't like a huge pyramid, but it was like a way of scaring the people into submission and uh, terrorizing the people so that they would be good subjects of the Ottoman Empire.
So I think some of those, those are important little stories and experiences that influence how I look at um, and feel sad about what people are doing to each other. And one part of that was there, when I was a young girl, we had a, um, a maid, her name was Rosie, and she was from what was called British Honduras at the time, but it's now Belize in Central America. And she was of African, she was African-American, African, Central American. And um, she would take the bus to come to our house. And for some reason, one time we, uh, my mother drove her home instead of her taking the bus. And where she lived was not many miles from where we lived, but it was what I later would learn is called a project and um, the projects, you know, and, and I remember just seeing little kids my age and how they looked and they were African-American, they were dark skinned and they had kinky hair and I and how, how she was living with her family, and there were a lot of people in a very small apartment. And I can remember being really um, worried and upset and didn't understand why I had white skin and I was born here in my little suburban, well, in Hollywood or whatever, but in a safer place with more space and what what randomness that other people are living another place because they're they have skin that's darker or you know they that it yeah that was really really disturbing to me and when i saw poverty in other countries and i i thought something's wrong with the world so um that, that experience of taking Rosie home and another time that we drove across the United States um, and we were in the South, we were in Alabama. And at that time, I can't remember, it might, might have been 1965, uh, they still had, I, it was the first time I'd seen it, but we'd go to a gas station and I'd need to go to the bathroom. And so they'd you know, I'd find the, the, the ladies' room, but there were men's, ladies, and colored. And I remember asking my parents, like, so the boys and girls go into the same bathroom because they're colored? You know, and it, again, just kind of like shaking my head. It just was crazy to me that um, the world was like that. And so... Um, that's a, a kind of a set of experiences and taking them in, uh, I mean, it's a sense of story um, that's really relevant to what we're uh, looking at right now and experiencing of uh, that, that there have been 400 years of people being tr treated that way and um, what the history of a race is and who invented that and how did we get to be the white people to be the ones who are ruling, you know? I have the same thing 
there's not so much horror, I just know this scientifically, that there's nothing better about what we call proper grammar. There's nothing better about it. It's just the, the way the ruling people, the ones with the guns and the, the capital speak, and that determines what the standard language is. But it's not like dialects. It's just one dialect. And why should it be better? It's just, it's not because it's superior. So I, I would always be telling my students, you know, what language you speak is perfect language. What, Italian is different from French. It doesn't make one better than the other. And um, uh, I really, I really have, I would love to pe for people not to use these kind of superficial differences as a, as a reason, as an, a justification for uh, dominating and being superior or treating people like less than human or less than valid. So uh, that, that's a big part of who I am and what I feel and how it relates to today, those experiences. So I got exposed to that. I, we also went to Jerusalem when it was part of Jordan. So this was in the mid 1960s. And so I was exposed to the Palestinian as Palestinians as refugees in Jordan and in Lebanon. And um, that, you know, really influenced me to, to realize that what I thought of as Israel as this promised land for the Jews was not so simple because it had had other inhabitants and um, they were refugees at that time. So uh, I got exposed to a lot of complicated things and scary things. Uh, even, in, even in Europe when I was a little girl, just like four or five years old, I saw um, European cities that still hadn't been restored after the Second World War. So the Second World War had ended 10 years before I was born. It seemed like a oh, long time ago, but um, I realized, wow, there, there were children and mothers in these buildings, and they were bombed. But I didn't see that in Los Angeles. It had been a long time since there was a war in California. There had been, but... Um, How was it growing up with your mother as an actress? Even when you were traveling around, did she still have like jobs there? Or was she not with you, or what was the case? Well, I think it's the way I understood it, and um, was that her family. She loved acting, and but her family didn't think, didn't encourage her to treat it as a career. It was more proper for her to get married, even though she married an Irish person. And so she, she regretted it, but she didn't realize how, how hard it would become to become a Hollywood employed actress. And she had what I understood was the best agency agent that represented her. It was called the William Morris Agency. And 
and that just happened to her. It was at a time when she was a teenage actress, like just you are, and she was in um, a community theater or whatever. And if you were like that in Hollywood at, in the 1930s, there were talent scouts who came out and discovered you and offered you jobs. And um, so when she was a, a teenager, she was offered jobs in movies. And her mother said, no, um, I don't want to be one of those mothers who sits next to, you know, because she knew like Shirley Temple, there, there were child actresses and their mothers were having to stay you know, in these boring, you know, how it is when you're rehearsing, it's just really boring. And her mother didn't want to do that. So she said, you know, when you get older, maybe you can do it. And so then when my mom got older and she was in college, she did get um, contracts with major um, uh, uh, film companies, like, what do you call them, production companies, like Warner Brothers and Fox. Um, at that time, she would have you know, a, a steady income. But her father never really supported her and tutored her about how to keep that. So when she got married, she wanted to be just the best and most beautiful mother that could be. And so she still would sometimes act. I would see her on t in TV shows. And that was kind of confusing because, you know, like she'd be in some cowboy show where her husband would get shot and I'd be confused, like, was that dad? You know, it was, it was confusing like that. And I also wondered why we weren't richer, you know, because she's an actress. Why doesn't she go and do that? And it was a little confusing. But the other thing is that it's, it's true is that, um, you know, my, my, our neighbor across the street, one of my friends, her father was a film editor. Lots of people were, connected to what they called the industry. You know, it's just Southern California has a lot of people that are in, you know, in all the jobs that have to do with theater, uh, well, film and TV. So um, I was proud that she was an actress and I, I thought she was beautiful and um, I didn't, you know, I just, yeah, it was, it was wonderful, but I don't think, um, she ever, when we were in um, like other countries, she didn't do anything uh, that was acting there. But when she was home, she would go for auditions, for advertisements, and she'd do voiceover for things. And sometimes she'd be in a movie. Even my first year of college, she was in, she had a small part in a um, kind of a scary movie. Uh, and uh, I was living in Northern California, and my friends and I went to see the movie when she when it came out. So it was kind of fun, you know, to see my mom be this nurse in the scary movie. Uh, so it was good. It was it was great. I I but I I think it was probably just like you. It was normal too. Yeah, that's yeah, that's interesting. Um, can you? I guess. Can you go into um, your your career phase? So I had a lot of uh, exposure to languages and cultures, and I, as I grew up, I really wanted to keep that as my um, way of living. So I I, I continued to travel um, myself. I um, I went. Uh, 
let's see, um, I, to Mexico, I traveled to um, um, Central and South America, and I taught English in, um, in Ecuador. And um, then later, uh, I lived in Nepal, in Kathmandu. Um, my husband at the time, ex-husband now, was learning and studying the language of the Kathmandu Valley. And um, I was teaching English. And so um, it's very different experiences. Um, yeah, so um, actually when I uh, finally uh, finished, I, I took a long time to get my bachelor's degree. And, um, and uh, I was kind of resistant to being, um, I, I, I wasn't sure I wanted to be some kind of professional or a, or a um, professor like my father was. I wanted to be more helping people, like maybe a counselor or an activist. I did a lot of teaching English as a second language, um, both abroad and in um, adult schools in Los Angeles and in migrant camps, uh, migrant labor camps um, in Oregon, state of Oregon. Uh, but it, so it took me a long time to uh, finish my BA and then I, I got a master's degree in linguistics and I, I decided linguistics because it's the study of language and language overlaps onto everything. It, it overlaps onto history and and literature and um, psychology and sociology. So I figured I didn't have to make up my mind. <laughs> so and then finally, when I was about 30, I decided I really wanted to settle down and have a job that I could count on. And I decided if I could get a fellowship to a PhD program, I would get um, a degree in uh, linguistics. I ended up getting a degree, uh, going to UCLA and um, getting a degree in applied linguistics. It was called applied linguistics there. And that was great. It was, so I was, I worked as a te teaching assistant. So I taught my own ESL classes, e English to foreign students. And, um, but I got to take classes in every department because it was interdepartmental uh, PhD. And um, so at, at that time, I had done my master's thesis on language prejudice. So how we have attitudes toward people and biases when we hear them speak a certain way. And particularly in Southern California, uh, that was, um, I was looking at teachers and how they judged kids who had Spanish pronunciation in their English. So uh, that was really interesting because a lot of kids, and still is, it's true, uh, had parents who spoke Spanish mainly. And so their, their community and their English, even though they were fluent in English, they, would, they might pronounce where I would say yellow, they might say yellow. And it's just slight. But the teachers could hear that, and they had some expectations that this person would have lower intelligence based on the fact that they had that. So I was interested in that kind of thing, um, equity and um, yeah, fairness. 
And then I, I, I did my PhD uh, more on how you study interaction, um, people like you and me talking. And uh, yeah, so that's how I was raised, and, and that led up to my getting a job um, at the university here. Even in my 20s, I was already uh, going slowly through school. I didn't, my parents assumed I would get a bachelor's degree. And I thought, you know, actually, my, my father, he was a sociologist. And um, I remember seeing on his desk in his office at campus a, a, a plaque that said he, had a, he got an award for being an expert on the family. Something's wrong here, and um, and I I think that was part of my attitude about becoming educated and and then maybe being a professor, which I ended up doing. But um, I thought I don't want to be an expert on something that I that is inconsistent with my my lifestyle. So so I didn't want to pretend I was an expert on the family and be it. He wasn't a really good dad. He was, he was difficult. Um, yeah, so uh, I, I think I had that attitude about uh, school. And I, I was good, but um, I wasn't sure. I mean, I even had an award. I was the most outstanding student in my graduating class from a state college. And um, but still, everybody was telling me what to do, and I thought, well, if I'm so smart, why don't you let me figure out what I want to do? You know, <laughs> and um, so. But a, a lot of the things I did had a lot of insecurity about their um, the income. You know, you'd be hired temporarily, and. Um, and you wouldn't know from semester to semester if you were going to have the same job. And uh, so that ultimately led me to want to, I, I also was, this I got from my father and mother. I was very curious, and I liked learning, and I liked being around universities. I also liked theater. And um, uh, we would also, we would often see student plays. and. Um, I guess I, I had that curiosity, and so when I, when, I, when I was kind of fed up with not being economically secure, I, it, it was, I was living in Oregon, in southern Oregon, and I decided, well, if I, like I said, if I, can, if I can get into a PhD program in, in anthropology or linguistics, and, and, it, and I don't go into debt. I wasn't in student debt at that time. And um, so if I could get some scholarship or something that would support me, there's nothing I really would rather do than be a nerd and um, go to college, you know, get a PhD, even if it wasn't clear that I'd get a job afterwards. But as long as I wasn't in debt, it sounded fun. I get to be fascinated by sociologists and psychologists and linguists and that sort of thing. So that worked out. And so it was. it was partly so I had income. Actually, that was the first time I knew that I'd have a a job because I was a teaching assistant and I had so many years of support. Um, 
And when I finished, and I was looking for jobs, there were my first job offer. Well, so I, I chose linguistics because it, like I said, it language is just so fascinating, and it has. And I'm interested in gesture too. And and my mother was kind of into performing, and my my exposure was to languages, and so it, it felt like a a really fascinating area to be in. It wouldn't end up being boring, and. Um, so when I was when I finished my PhD, I was about thirty-three, and um, it turned out that the program I was in at UCLA, that UCLA had a good reputation. The program I was in had a repu good reputation. My um, advisor, who's the person who's the main person that guides you and writes your letters of recommendation, she had a really strong scholarly reputation. Reputation. Actually, I had two um, chairs of my dissertation committee, and they both had um, strong reputations. So, I was uh, um, a lot of people were interested in having me um, interview for their positions. And so, what you do is uh, once you finish a PhD, is if you're lucky, you get invited to campuses and and you spend a few days there giving talks and meeting people and talking to students and um, checking them out, but most, mostly they're checking you out. And uh, so I, I was invited to Michigan State, um, to University of Michigan, um, Madison, <laughs> and I also was scheduled to go to University of Hawaii for an interview and to... Um, uh, actually, even before this, I um, was offered a job in Australia. It was in Melbourne. In, uh, and that would have been great. I just, I, um, it was so far away from my family. I thought, oh, well, it'll be close to this. It's far away from everywhere. So I, and the other thing was, my, my, I, by then I was divorced, so I was single, and I, my best buddy was my cat. And, and at that time, if I had accepted the job in Melbourne, my cat would have had to stay under quarantine in Hawaii for four months, and then in Canberra, the, the capital of Australia, for another four months. And I just thought, I can't do that to my cat, and I'm not going without my cat. I thought he'd be pushing weights by the time I got him back again, and he'd be—I wouldn't recognize him, and that was—it was just not acceptable. And so it was—it was partly being away from my family, and partly being not being able to separate from my cat. <laughs> so, uh, so that's true. That was many months. Be it was actually before I even finished my PhD that I got that offer. But when I was actually finished, I, I, I interviewed here and Ann Arbor and um, Michigan State, and I still had other ones I was going to, like I, I think Urbana-Champaign. But I had an offer from Michigan State and from Madison at the same time. And um, compared to Melbourne, Australia, the, it didn't seem that far. And um, so I ended up choosing Madison. I, I liked Michigan State because it, 
uh, felt like not quite as, it felt more like the people's school. You know, there are, for the University of Wisconsin um, in Milwaukee is, is more like the people's school. And um, Madison is like the flagship, it's the, you know, the big prestigious one. And I, I thought, I'm, my values are more with the people's school. And, um, but then I came to Madison and I thought it was so cute. And when I, you know, it, it was like in, in March and I, they picked me up at the airport and people were um, ice skating in Tenney Park. And I just thought, wow, you know, it just, it would had, and it had good coffee. <laughs> so I, I, I caved in and, and went to the, the nicer place uh, in my, in my mind. Yeah. So I, I accepted a job in the English department here in, they have a sub part that's called English linguistics. University of Wisconsin also has a separate language sciences department. And that would have been a nice home for me too. Eventually, I also got a joint appointment in sociology and English. So, because what I do is not so much like the literature people, and it's more like sociology, or it's a mix. So, um, yeah. And I, I, I still, even as I became a university professor, I, I still felt like I don't really fit in here, you know. Uh, I don't know what it was. It, there's something about, uh, I felt like there was a kind of too much arguing and too much trying to be right. And that's the way I was raised. My father, you know, and lawyers and everybody trying to be right. And, um, and I thought, I don't want to prove anything. I want to be teaching. I love teaching. I love doing research, but I didn't have to be right. And, you know, and, argue with people and that just never felt comfortable. So I actually took courses at Edgewood College to try to see, explore being a counselor instead of uh, a professor during that time. And I was very lucky that I connected with a woman named Molly Carnes. She's a physician researcher. She's a professor in um, School of Medicine. And another woman named um, Joe Handelsman, who is a professor of microbiology, but she's now the director of the Discovery Institute on campus. And I met them because I was on a committee that had to do with the status of women on the campus. And um, I got involved with them and uh, got grants with them to study uh, or to advance more women and minorities in science and engineering and so it felt like I was, at least I was doing something that was close to my heart. Uh, aside from teaching is always wonderful. It's just great. It's, and, and I w had a chance to be the mentor or director for um, a number of students that got PhDs and are doing great things. So, um, but when I had the opportunity to retire and I re realized that I could, I could make ends meet, you know, me and Donna together. And um, I, I retired a little earlier than, you know, rather than staying on, because I just thought, I just want to spend some years not having to be right. 
and being able to just be compassionate. And, and then it ended up that I'm, I've gone back to something that I first loved in Vienna, in, back in Austria. I haven't gone back to Austria, but I loved puppet shows. I absolutely adored puppet shows since I was four years old. And I always made puppets and gave them away and did little puppet shows and, and around the, for the neighborhood. And so now I've gone to puppet theater intensives um, and uh, learned a lot about making and performing puppets. Mostly I'm making them. I just did a course on shadow puppetry with the guy who did the war horse puppet. I don't know if that, that Broadway play, it was a, a really articulate puppet. And he, he was great. He's in Chicago and he did a Zoom. It's one of the good things that comes out of this pandemic is that I, I you know, I'm not a professional puppeteer, but I got access to someone who was so great and he was just down to earth. And so I'm, I'm doing puppet making and puppeteering. And I, I'm also studying and practicing um, compassionate communication. So it's about language, but it's also about how we can be more um, together in the ways we talk and cooperative and compassionate. Um, so the puppetry that I'm doing now is probably like when I was doing research, I was looking at videotapes of people talking. So it's just like, you know, the same thing. It's just looking at performances and um, making performances. Um, yeah, so, so I, did, I did research on human interaction and um, how language lives in our bodies, not just in, you know, on the written page of what words can be, but how it's embodied. So it, it connects back to like performance and at, being a teacher is also performance. So when I think of, how, how my mom influenced me. She influenced me that way too. But she was also very compassionate. So, yeah. The stuff that is going on today, do you think that it's like a pivotal moment? Do you think that there's going to be a lot of change coming from it? I hope there's positive change. Um, that's my, that's what I envision and hope for and pray for. And, um, but I know there will be change. I, I, it, so all my life from when I was a little child, seeing those bombed out buildings and seeing countries that were poor, like Mexico versus California, you know, what life was like there. I knew something was wrong. And I even had the expression, and I still have it, something's got to give. You know, this imbalance cannot, cannot be sustained. And now we have the climate crisis um, that it, something is going to change. And um, with uh, migration right now, refugees that because of climate and economics, I think it is changing. It, the question is whether we as humans will be able to cooperatively move with the change and, and adapt and do the right thing so that the change will not be catastrophic. It'll be something that we can shape together. And I'm not sure. I'm scared of that, you know, that outcome. But I think the pandemic 
is is a result of globalization and uh, you know it's part it's already a result something is giving and the fact that we have um common common anyone can have a video camera is showing us what what has been happening for hundreds of years and um so I, I do believe change is going to happen, is happening. Um, and I just want to be uh, as hopeful and as participatory as I can in making it um, a change that is for the good. Yeah, well said. If you have any final things you want to say or... No, yeah. I, I mean, I, I would just say that I really, I really celebrate and... That, that you're doing this. It's just a wonderful way to be the person you are. I just remember you uh, shoveling the snow off our steps and, and I remember you dancing in um, uh, whatever play I saw <laughs> that you were in. And, and I remember you being in that Tibetan one and just that you have a, 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 a liveliness and a um, intensity and a friendliness and a, an interest in people, you know, when when you talk to people, you act like they're really interesting, and you're not pretending. They and, are, and, I mean. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I think this is perfect, and I'm so I'm so delighted that you're doing it, and I and it makes me hopeful that there are people like you who are your age that are um, using their energy and interest to shed light on other people and share stories uh, i just think it's beautiful so thank you thank you the madisonian podcast is the production of benjamin brownie in association with we are productions it's hosted by Ben Brown, cover art, editing, producing, and booking by Ben Brown. If you are a Madisonian and would like to be on the show, please email at benjaminbrownieproductions at gmail.com. And please support us by buying our merch at teespring.com slash stores slash the Madisonian podcast. That's teespring.com slash stores slash the Madisonian podcast. This week, I did just receive samples of the merch for me, and they look awesome. So please, please, please go and support the show and buy that merch there. Thank you for listening to the fourth episode of the Madisonian podcast. <laughs>